All right, we are in fact recording. Okay, we have a full house tonight on Mentioned in Dispatches. This is episode two of season nine, and, and we haven't gotten out of sequence yet, which is nice. I mean, we're only on episode two, so it's early, but but I wouldn't put it past us at some point. And, and Rocky is back again this week. Welcome back, Rocky. Glad to have you. Hey, thank you. Oh, we're getting a little scratchiness from you again, there, dude. Not sure what's up with your audio. You were fine until we hit record. I'm not sure what you did to us. Um, back for another trip with uh with the dragoons here. Our good buddy in Kansas. Wait, are you on the Kansas or Missouri side of the line right now? I I'm. I live in Missouri, but I work in Kansas. Okay. So so we're probably talking to you from Missouri at this point. Yep. Our, our buddy James is here. Welcome back, James. Thank you. And then a first-timer for Mention and Dispatch is here, but but certainly done podcasts before and probably the, the guy whose name recognition exceeds the other three of us combined. Mr. Volko Runke is here with us this evening. Welcome, Volko. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me in. We're glad to have you. We needed somebody to class up the joint because uh, <laughs> Rocky and I certainly weren't doing it. So. <laughs> um, but Volko is here for a specific purpose, and that was he, he jumped into a bunch of the conversation that sort of sprawled across Twitter about a week and a half, almost two weeks ago at, at the point at which people will be listening to this podcast. Um, and, and James is here because James and I have had this discussion multiple times over the years. And, and Rocky's here because this one's all his fault. So he's the guy that started this whole thing. So Ian had written a, a review slash analysis. It wasn't a full end-to-end review, uh, but but pretty close of the first of the Flashpoint. Uh, I don't want to, Flashpoint campaigns is the computer game, but but it's the Flashpoint series from GMT of the board games. And that first one is uh, South China Sea. But, uh, Ian, I'm, I'm going to let you explain for those who have not yet read the review, give us the short version of it and sort of what came to mind as you were playing that game. So Flashpoint South China Sea is supposedly um, the first of these lunchtime games. It's a uh, strategy game uh, that's supposedly uh, based on current events. And when I played it, um, my, my review impression that I go into. Uh, It's a good game, but I had problems with um, really connecting the theme to the game. Uh, It's supposed to be a game uh, showing current events, and I just had problems with that. So in my clumsy way of speaking, I said, I I really didn't feel that this was really a good simulation um, of of the current events and the the politics and, and sort of the dynamics of diplomatic, economic, military influence. I mean, the game is one of these cute as an influence game um, out there. And I just, I had problems with it and where where people jumped in and started talking about was the whole notion of, is it a game? Is it a simulation? Is a war game a simulation? Is a simulation, can a simulation be a war game? Um, So a lot of people jumped in with a lot of different comments and that has brought us to here tonight uh, to talk about uh, what is a war game simulation? Is a simulation (laughs) war game? So... I know Volka has jumped in many times talking about his models and, uh, and and simulations and models as a representations of reality and such. So I'm very curious to hear his thoughts on this tonight. But that's really where we ended up. I mean, and, and it, it sort of gets to the point of I, I always approach games with I'm trying to learn something from them. So when I'm looking at a game, what can I learn out of it? And is if it is it simulating something for me? Um, certainly there are abstract games that you can still learn something from. There are simulations very 
hard, uh, maybe called high fidelity models uh, that you can also learn things from. And I was just, as I was going through this one, it just struck me as I, I didn't quite get what was being um, presented to me. I mean, it was a good game. I liked the game. It's a good game. It's a really good, plays very well. But I just was really had a hard time saying South China Sea. I mean, so what was it simulating? What yeah. was it representing to me? So we'll, well, we'll go from there. I- I think part of the point you made in the in the introduction of the article, and the article is linked to this podcast episode, so people will be able to see it. Hey, click over there, read it, come back and finish listening to the episode if you want. That's fine. Just don't get distracted by cats on YouTube, and we'll be we'll be fine. We'll be here waiting for you. The part of the point you were making in in as you were initially explaining it is there are a lot of actions that you're taking within the context of the game that are completely topic independent. That essentially many of the actions you're taking and the ways in which you try to score points and the ways you try to manipulate the engine of the game to the player's maximal advantage uh, is almost completely independent of the the context being provided the the sort of political military context being provided by the cards i don't want to put too many words in your mouth but that's that's certainly what i was getting out of the way in which you approached the initial part of that review and am i right Uh, yes very much so i mean the the game um thematically you're supposed to be playing the the one who's trying to leverage the diplomatic uh the economic um even military actions to try to um you know solidify your position and as i was doing it you're certainly playing game actions but i had a problem connecting those game actions to something of reality i mean they were game actions and and there was points where uh, to me what what is a great one of the great mechanics of the game is is choosing when you score your points um and that i love it how you sit there and you you have to decide i'm going to score these cards now or i'm going to wait later but maybe if you don't if you wait later maybe you're not in the right position to score them so that's a great mechanic of trying to decide when I'm going to score the game. But I had a hard time connecting that too. But I just did a diplomatic initiative or was I doing economic? Um, Wait, they're going to respond with the military. It it really just, that that connection was what was not uh, coming for me. And that's where I got into the word simulation. What was it simulating for me? Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think the the varying levels of abstraction are certainly one of the pieces that we we deal with in wargaming a lot because there are a lot of non war games that that are essentially points engines with a theme pasted on them. The one of the ones I mentioned in the Twitter thread as it sort of sprawled was the uh, the Carcassonne games. the The fact that you have the same basic mechanics reskinned into like fifteen different topics and themes for different Carcassonne games shows you that that the 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 underlying engine is very much divorced from the topic that you are playing about and that's and that's fine like there's nothing wrong with that when you're when you're making games but as war gamers we're looking for something that that has a little more research a little more historical fidelity to it a little more oomph behind it started talking about simulations versus games. James, before you and I have round 387 or so over the past 17 years of this conversation, Volko jumped in discussing with our boy in Portugal, Mr. Hethwill there. Um, Volko, you jumped in with some some fairly pointed questions about simulations versus games and drawing some distinctions, but sort of how, how people might assess one or the other and trying to indirectly ask about some definitions uh, without just asking people to provide a dictionary definition. W- what were you thinking as you were seeing some of this conversation unfold and where were you trying to, to steer for some answers? Yeah, I, 
I, I think I was trying to steer ultimately to implications. Um, and before, you know, whenever there's a semantic discussion, I always, um, I tend to be impatient and want to get to the, you know, policymaker executive summary. So what, you know, what, tell me what difference it makes. What can I do with it? But you do have to have common language to get to consequences, to get to implications. And so the definitions are important. Um, in this case, when we talk about games, war games, consims, simulations, etc. Um, I, I think that there are two aspects that are fundamental and inseparable that do have to do with implications um, that are inseparable from the conversation about what is or isn't a war game simulation, how much is or isn't it. And both of them, Ian, you, you, you uh, hit uh, repeatedly in your comments. So I just want to kind of point to those because because I think um I think if we if we sidestep the either of these two aspects we get ourselves wandering an axle definitionally about about war games. So one thing that you said um Ian about Flashpoint South China Sea was that it didn't connect you to the real world events, playing the game, the mechanics, whatever, didn't connect you. And for several times you said for you, or you said to me, use the phrase to me. And this is a point that I've made in print in the recent C3I. I don't think we can, certainly not as hobbyists, and, I, and I'm not even sure as professionals, that we can usefully discuss uh, how much is something or isn't something a war game without the to me, without how are we personally relating. Because I, Peter Perlow wrote, you know, game design is communication, right? And how we are relating to it is fundamental to, to what we get out of it and what we think about it. And I, I this is not, this is, can be controversial. And this controversy came up in that very Twitter thread about to what degree the aspects of a game, simulation in a game, for example, are inherent to the thing, immutable to the thing once it's designed and exists, and to what degree they are relative to the player and how the player is experiencing it. And, I, and, and I, I don't think they're inherent to the thing. I think the player matters a great deal. And the phrase I tend to use when I either play historical uh, historical games, war games myself, or I see others play them, or I think about them, or I evaluate them, or review them, or whatever. My phrase for what you were talking about, uh, Ian, about connecting to the real world, my phrase is, do I buy the model? Or is the player buying the model? Sometimes you buy the model, meaning you accept you suspend disbelief and that game is transporting you somewhere into the, you know, politics of the South China Sea or, you know, into the Battle of the Bulge or whatever. And sometimes it just isn't. And it may it may be that you do buy the model and I don't buy the model and the game is the same. And yet one of us only is making the connection, is, 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 is able to suspend disbelief in that way. And so that's sort of one aspect. Um, so, for example... Carcassonne. Okay, maybe the underlying mechanics are divorced from medieval city building. Okay, but it's not just the mechanics that's in the package. There's art. There's mm -hmm. uh, there's there are shapes. There are ways that the physical game suggests what the mechanics are trying to simulate. And there are model aspects even in the me underlying mechanics. Although for us, perhaps light and abstract. And for you, Brandt, you play Carcassonne. It doesn't take you anywhere. It's just a, an abstract game. And for somebody else. It very well may make them think of medieval yeah. towns and and farms and knights. And for them, it becomes a simulation. And for you, it doesn't. It's the same game. Uh, and so 
then we start to argue, well, is it a simulation now? Well, for whom, right? It, it, it seems to be an inescapable part of that, that discussion. The second aspect, Ian, and you touched on this also, is for what end? For what purpose am I making that connection? Am I buying the model or not? And Ian, you said, well, you like to learn about something. What are you learning about when you play Flashpoint South China Sea? Not as much as when you play something else that that appeals to you more from the point of view of learning military history or current politics or whatever, what have you. For somebody else, not only may they be learning, they, they're coming from, to it from a different basis than you. They have different amount of information than you. They may be learning an awful lot of whatever they're looking to learn from playing this game and learning about dynamics in the South China Sea that they don't already know about and they're interested in, or they know something about and this tells them more and so forth. So this comes from the fundamental definition of model that we used when we taught it for intelligence analysis. What is a model? Purposeful simplification. There's always a level of abstraction of some degree. There's simplification of being, I think, a more precise word for that, but it's always to some purpose. And that purpose is, again, decisive. And we we may play Carcassonne for different purposes. And that too affects how we view it, how we interact with it, and what where it takes us. Yeah. Touched on a couple of things there, and I'm, I'm we're going to drag James into this here in just a second. But the the whole idea of what does it feel like to me, I think, is is very important. I do want to say that it, one of the challenges that we ran into it, it was it was a bit of a challenge, but it was also pretty entertaining. So the 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 Twitter thread that is linked here at one point or another had people dragged into the conversation uh, whose native languages are German, Portuguese, Spanish, French. I think we had a native Dutch speaker in there, and at least one native. San Diegan. So English is a second language across all of the Twitter conversation right there, which was kind of cool. It's very uh, cool. I mean, this is a cool thing about Twitter, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like one of the one of the few rather cool things about Twitter. Nobody was really getting pissed at each other, which was also kind of cool. Nobody was really getting angry. Everybody seemed to enjoy the conversation. It also, it was clear that folks were all using the same words for slightly different definitions. And that, I think if we backed up and sort of established some ground rules with definitions, that might have helped some. And that's one of the things, so two, three years ago, it was pre-pandemic when I did it, but but a couple of years ago, I had put together a video based on a professional development thing that I've done for some local schools here in the Raleigh area, some of the community college folks, some middle high school teachers about using games and sims for training and learning. And one of the first things that I do very early in the, uh, in the presentation is I set up some definitions. Within the context of this presentation, when I use this term, this is what I'm referring to. So that way it, it clears all of that up front. And, and my point is not, this is the only right answer. It's, this is the answer I'm using in this presentation. Yes. Ground rules. It's ground rules. Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned the idea of something, how it feels to me. And I think that um, this is another conversation Ian and I had had uh, back when the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine first kicked off and we saw the Russians sort of, you know, 10 miles down the road and stopped, right? The, all of their logistics assets all failed in the same day and exact same time, same way, yada, yada, yada. And there was a lot of discussion floating around um, the web sort of, you know, amongst the war gamers. Well, how do we put that in a war game? How do we deal with this in a war game and there's the challenge with putting logistics in a war game is that first of all logistics aren't cool right war gamers don't want to play logistics because it's not blowing shit up right it's not a lot of fun hey now look <laughs> logistics on, are awesomely cool <laughs> on our professional practitioner side sure but but hobbyists are going to have a hard time buying you know the the wrench turning simulation wow. game 
we're gonna, um, we're gonna although there that. is a vr tank simulator tank mechanic simulator available on steam that that i found you know as part of tuesday newsday it's on sale right now the um the the what what you end up with is people talking about logistics models in wargaming and and you know again rocky and i were sort of poking around because he he helped me piece together the bigger article that i wrote for a lot of wargamers a detailed logistics model means granularity in classes of supply tracking, right? It's the most detailed logistics model ever. You've got to track 30 millimeter ammo by type, you know, it's separate from the 762, separate from the main gun rat, like granularity to certain people seems to represent a greater degree of, of reality of simulation than than other than, than not having that sort of granular tracking than just moving big assets around whereas somebody like me who's actually done field logistics in a professional environment you know granularity of ammo great that's a spreadsheet drill I, I can count numbers on an excel spreadsheet and call it good enough to me i'm more worried about the actual traffic flow of the logistics and how do i get things from point a to point b how do i manage my loads so that if one of my Hemets gets gets shot, I'm not out all of my tank ammo that I've still got some other tank ammo that survived on another Hemet somewhere else. Where are the medics positioned to actually be useful, but not be so close that they're getting shot at? Who's guarding my enemy prisoner of war camp? Where are my maintenance guys and how quickly can they displace if they need to? Like there's a lot of other pieces in a logistics model that I care about because I've done this stuff that if you're going to tell me that something is ha, has a high fidelity towards reality and is is a, you know, a, a representative representative simulation of those things, I need that level of detail and granularity to really buy that model. Whereas someone who's much more casually, passingly familiar with how the entire logistics ecosystem works um, may be perfectly fine just tracking ammo count and, you know, moving gallons of gas around the battlefield and call it good enough. And, and so that, that tacking on that phrase to me certainly resonates in that regard there. Now that we babbled for a second, James, we've been arguing about games versus Sims for a while. And when we used to do our sort of two-headed roadshow back at Origins in the Games and Sims for Military Training panel at the War College, you brought up, you, you would always bring up something that Volko mentioned in his in his little conversation right there about what's the purpose to which we are trying to bend these tools. And so the idea of what am I doing with this thing helps determine where on the game sim line it falls. Of course, I advocate the fact there's a significant overlap between games and Sims. You know, also in your work context as a part of this, you had to draw some distinctions. Talk to us about those a little bit. So there's there's a variety of contexts in which this argument breaks out. And sometimes the context is people are saying, why are we using this dumb, inherently bad game? We should be using a wonderful, awesome simulation. And there's been a thread of simulation good, game bad which I don't hold any truck with. The, when, you're, when you are faced with that problem, a useful way to deal with the problem is to ask, all right, does this thing actually suit the purpose? Because if whatever it is, whatever you're going to call it, the thing we're using in this class and this exercise is going to suit the purpose, it's going to accomplish what we need, then it's good. And if it does not, then it's bad. And it doesn't really care what the title is. You can call it gold-plated frog leg. And if it doesn't get you what you need, then it's junk for that purpose. Uh, but if you're getting more analytic about this, which you have on numerous occasions over the last two decades, <laughs> uh, then 
I find that there's a lot of utility in starting off with the Army Models and Sims Office definitions, that a model is a representation, much like what Volko was bringing up earlier. The model is the, the, the sort of atomic level of what's going on there. The simulation is the model over time, because there's pretty clearly things that are simulations that are not games. I'm going to simulate the flight of this artillery shell. I put in, here's the, you know, the angle and the launch velocity and the rotation of the Earth and whatever other factors you're going to throw in, and we iterate through its effects on the shell and it lands somewhere. When we introduce decisions and goals, now we've got a game. So when I'm going to launch this at Volko, but he's trying to hide and he's launching shells back and we're going to see who hits each other's cannon first, ta-da, we've got a game, which is, to my mind, then when you've got a game about a military topic, it's a war game. So yes, you asked in the pre-thing, is uh, Twilight Struggle a war game? <laughs> to my mind, yes, it's a game and it simulates a conflict. Ta-da! Uh, but that is, that is whether or not it is, by these definitions, a game or a war game, is different from whether or not it is good. I can yeah. have something, right? You can have a perfectly terrible car, and it is possible for Rocky and for me to have a disagreement over what constitutes a terrible car. He might want the car for a given purpose. I might want it for a different purpose. You know, he wants it to go fast and be red, and I don't care about that, or whatever it might be. And therefore, our personal reactions, as Volko's bringing up, to its quality, its goodness or not goodness, could be extremely different. One of the other things that gets wrapped around the axle in this frequently is that people will will take both fidelity and resolution, the realism and the detail, and assume that more is always better and not work those back to whether or not it serves whatever purpose you have. They also assume that more detail automatically means more realism. Uh, there's a slide I show my students, which has a giant slide of nothing but red. And I tell them, yes, this monitor is now one pixel, but it's exactly the shade of red I wanted. Isn't it gorgeous? And then I have a picture of snow off a television. And yeah, it's got immense numbers of pixels, but none of them are exactly what we want, so we can't see anything. And it's that you want the right balance of each of these to achieve what you're going to achieve. The mechanic versus theme that came up with Carcassonne as well, it certainly can come up with others. The, for me, and this is where we're getting to, in part, right, value judgments on my part. I want the the mechanics and the theme to work together, particularly for a good game that's going to be used in the classroom, because you want people to say, okay, you know, the theme says I'm doing X, and therefore the half of my brain that plays according to the theme, the play brain, will say that. And then the game brain that sees all the mechanics says, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it. Let's get those three points because. Whereas if instead I'm telling you, all right, we're going to play this game about hunting submarines in the North Atlantic. And in order to kill a submarine, I ask you whether or not you've got a card with a given value. If I do, and I get a set of four of them, I build the set and I win. And the game brain says, yeah, this is go fish. Goodbye. I'm checking out. Uh, but all of these are in many ways independent. You can have a perfectly terrible model simulation game or war game. It doesn't make it not a game. You can be completely unable to tell what the simulation is modeling. Uh, my favorite example used to be Tet Tetris, but Raf Koster in uh, A Theory yeah. of Fun for Game Design has a horrific example of what te Tetris might actually be. Uh, but in a sense, it doesn't matter. It's simulating what happens if we have this set of rules, and then we overlay the decisions and goals when we got the game. I think I've wandered from one of your original questions there, though. Dude, seriously. It's it's the podcast, man. We do this. It's, <laughs> we start at one point. We somehow end up somewhere at some point after, so, you know, 90 minutes or so. Yeah. And if I can, I'd like to you know bounce off of that. A lot of what, what um, each of you are saying, uh, it, going a little bit back to this question of logistics models and what level of... Uh, 
uh, granularity, I think you said, Brent, what level of granularity might be appropriate to different purposes and different audiences and this issue. And I love that example, James, of, you know, one pixel, but it's, it's the right pixel for the, for the, for the purpose. Uh, something that, that James, that, that you were describing that helps us evaluate, say, how good is this, this thing, this game, this simulation, this model and so forth for a given purpose. And f- indeed for a given audience, um, something you're describing, the word that, that I have used for that, that I think is important as we evaluate games, rather than just debating, is this a, you know, does it deserve this label or that label, but rather how good is it for this purpose or this audience? Um, the word I, I, I like is accessibility um, the, as, a, as, a, as a criterion for when you're selecting, if you were to be selecting different games for a given purpose, a given learning purpose, or given fun purpose or a given group of players, um, or if you're designing um, a, a, a war game or a con sim or whatever, and you're envisioning a certain player, you know, we, in communication, we envision audience. If you're writing an article, you're thinking about a certain readership. If you're, if we record a podcast, we're envisioning a certain kind of, of listener and we're trying to provide something useful. Same thing that, that game designers do or should be doing as well. So if it's a, if there's a, a model in it and a part of the, the, the part of the communication, the purposeful communication is that a player is going to understand that model. It's going to operate that model and playing the game and then relate to it, connect it to something real, connect it to the South China Sea, or use it to understand the dynamics of logistics in a, a land forces battle better than they did before. Um, they have to, yeah, they have to be able to some degree to, to see that model in motion to see that to to know when they're pulling levers or pushing buttons when they put inputs into that dynamic that simulation that model that changes over time that that that, that when the output comes back they kind of understand why right they know and this is a problem if you have too much granularity and now you need a computational aid to deal with all of that data you need a spreadsheet you need equations you need a computer program and you need user interface and all this other thing you might you might if you're doing it well have that granularity yield precision and accuracy that could also go wrong but you might be getting that but you're likely to be wearing away at the accessibility that is my ability to see why did what what your model just did. Why did it do that? And that means I'm having a harder time as in a game as a player, as a learner, as somebody who's trying to be transported back in time, whatever my purpose is. I'm having a harder time relating to your to your model. I'm having a harder time connecting it to reality. I'm having a harder time learning anything from it because the granularity is in the way. And so that's a trade-off perhaps. So if we think about different media, a, game, a board game is one modeling medium, if you like. Um, and different ways to design them or select them. Um, you know, we if we have more detail, but it's a it's a barrier to access to the to the model. You know, then detail or granularity on the one side, accessibility on the other side are trade offs. And to uh, when we think about then we go back to purpose and who is the player, who is the audience, uh, then we can make a better decision if we realize that neither of those things, granularity or accessibility, are um, absolute goods. They are trade-offs that we should try to select appropriately and balance appropriately to our purpose. I agree with you overall, but a funny counterpoint is that we use Nevsky in the uh, history through wargaming course that I co-teach with one of the history faculty at CGSC. And part of what we like about Nevsky 
is that students struggle mightily with it because <laughs> it does a nice job of presenting an era of warfare which is utterly alien to them. And we watch them bang and bang and bang their heads against, oh my gosh, you know, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be. Why, For example, why are battles so so much of a crapshoot and we don't know if we're going to win them. And we're sitting there saying, yes, that's part of what we're trying to have you learn out of this. Yeah, but we should be able to, to ensure that we're going to win. No, <laughs> they couldn't and neither can you. Rocky, what do you think? Let's bring it back to some of the points you were making with South China Sea, as, as well as wherever else you want to take this conversation. Well, I think the first first point that jumps out at me is, um, and I've gone through this through my own growth of wargaming. Um, I used to look at simulations as uh, sort of a high fidelity model. I, I, I still, to this day, I, I follow my I'm calling something like birds of prey a simulation. Uh, it's a very complex the nomograms. Um, it's it's a flight simulator on paper. Yep. Um, t- I have a hard time calling that a war game. I call it a simulation. Um, but I think that's because I get caught up, and it's been pointed out here the the complexity of the game is is what's driving my definition, which is doesn't mean it's a simulation. That's just it's complexity, not a fidelity of a simulation. Yeah. Um, over over time, I too have learned that uh, sometimes abstract is better, and sometimes the abstract, you actually, by taking out the details, uh, you can learn a lot more. Um, you know. Well, my my favorite logistics game is uh, uh, Race of the Rhine. Gosh, Abelbell's game. No, no, no. Gosh, I'm not drawing a blank. Oh boy. Um, Good thing we can edit this, huh? Oh, Abel the uh, supply lines uh, of the American, American Revolution, Revolution game. Supply lines. Gosh, how could I just? Yeah, here it is. Need to drink some more. Uh, <laughs> supply lines. I mean, logistics is uh, two different color cubes. Um, and and I sit there, I look at that, and I go, How on earth can this be a simulation of logistics? But oh my gosh, if you read the history of the time, you read the different books. That 1776 and such it captures it to the greatest degree it's such a non-complex way of simulating uh something that's that that has a lot of details behind it but it gets all abstracted out and i think what i'm hearing here today the, the complexity versus accessibility is is a wonderful way that designers and players uh should be looking at it and not trying to draw a continuum between the modeling and simulation community and the war game community i mean there's some people out there i've, I've worked in some agencies where the modeling and sims folks say this is war game sit down and play no it's a it's a model and sim and it's very high fidelity but it's not a war game it's it's a simulation yeah and maybe if we got rid of that continuity everyone's trying to draw that line between war games to modeling and sims if we can just get away from that and take a better approach like what james and uh, voco both talk about the Accessibility, complexity, especially looking at how you address complexity, we'd make a lot uh, go a lot further. And I think Flashpoint, um, although I keep saying said that I didn't, you know, it didn't seem like it was simulating it to me. I do see where it was abstracting out, um, trying to present it in a less complex way. Um, but I'm going to come back to for me, uh, it, it didn't quite make that connection. And I totally agree. It may make that connection for others. Yeah. Um, and as a designer, I guess that's the that's the, the, the uh, challenge that you have. Yeah, I, I do want to take a, a, a slight digression off into a, a little bit of definitional insanity here. Um, 
we, we talked early about sort of vocabulary and the importance of establishing some definitions up front. Not that we're going to sit here and try and, and, and come to some sort of agreement on all of the definitions because, again, they may be contextually relevant and they change depending on the audience and, and you know, what the audience understands of these things. I will say that, that I think there's some built-in confusion within the Wargame community because there are a lot of folks that, that hearken back to, you know, Jim Dunnigan in Complete Wargames Handbook uh, among other places, talked about uh, not referring to war games as war games, calling them conflict simulations because it avoids the two problematic terms of war and game. The problem with that is not all conflicts are wars, but also games and sims aren't necessarily the same thing. There's certainly some overlap, but there are sims that aren't games and vice versa. I think that that, that was part of where some folks ended up talking past each other some in that Twitter conversation is that, that some folks, clearly any activity that involved fun was being considered a game. And I think most of us would draw the definition a little more exclusively than that. I happen to adhere pretty pretty closely to a lot of the Greg Kostickian definition of a game. One of the key factors of um, of the game is you got to have a winner and a loser. Like there's got to be some decision point out there somewhere that says, here's how we're scoring points or we're determining victory. But it, it's not a game unless it's inherently competitive. And that's not always the case with some things that are simulations. Flight sims are a great example. The fact that I can pop on Microsoft Flight Simulator and relax and enjoy my time, you know, zipping around the world's airports and, you know, get an overhead look at Nairobi as I come into land. That's great and it's fun, but without some sort of scoring mechanism or competition between me and somebody else, it's not necessarily a game per Kostikian's definitions that that I happen to like. Um, Once you put points on something, now you're actually competitive and, and that flight sim can become a game if you're using it to determine a race or you're trying to fly through an obstacle course or whatever it might be. Some of those definitions and those conversations, I think, are implied by a lot of people talking about games versus sims, conflict versus war, that aren't necessarily uh, always made clear. Those ground rules aren't provided up front by the people in those conversations. I think that's where you start to run into some of the, quite frankly, some of the flame wars that we see online around wargaming and conflict simulation and what are the right terms. And, you know, that's not a game, that's a sim well you know maybe it is a sim maybe it's both maybe it's neither uh volco at one point showed the example where where folks were arguing that every game is a sim of something volco asked a very pointed question what's jeopardy a simulation of i don't know what it would be a simulation of um so i I do think that the need to establish some ground rules when you're trying to discuss the vocabulary, while it might make for a a slightly more boring social media flame war, uh, does more to enhance understanding for a lot of people. As the Armchair Dragoons march into the ninth season of their podcast, Mentioned in Dispatches, we need to make time to thank our Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Patrick Garrity... Mike Quigley, Joseph Knoll, Hethwell Wargames, Robert, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell, Treb Curry, Staggerwing, and Patrick Mullen for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. James, this goes back to, I mean, we first started having these games versus Sims discussions in like 2006 at this, you know, it's, it's been a while. And, and, you know, we've had kids go from elementary school to college in the time that we've had this argument. Uh, But I think part of it, and this was something that 
came clear, you know, after the second or third time we were doing these these seminars at, at Origins, we were both coming to that discussion with distinct definitions of games and sims. And, and you've already talked some about how it was contextually relevant based on what you were doing professionally to the audience you needed to talk to. I was looking for more of an academic definition that, that kind of drew some distinguishable lines that enabled a, a little better data categorization. Again, from my academic background, that's the direction you would have expected me to go. Uh, but but I think those those played into some of the, the disagreements, cheerful and lighthearted as they were, they were still disagreements about the concepts and definitions. With all that said, I've now talked way too much. Uh, Volko, jump in here. Save sure. the audience from listening to me. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I think there are two different angles that I think you're right. There's maybe confusion about in, in some of these conversations if we start talking about, well, should we call it a, should we use the phrase conflict simulation or not? And, you know, it, well, what if, you know, does it have to be a game and so forth and so on? It seems to me that that one purpose might be categorization. We want to have ground rules for a discussion of, of a set of things, you know, and we need to know what's in that set and what's out of that set. And we want terms that convey a mutual understanding of, of what those boundaries might be, for example. That's one purpose. I, I think, I don't know if that was Jim Dunnigan's original purpose in in encouraging the use of the, the, the phrase conflict simulation. I don't know what it was and I, I don't have that, you know, book in my my memory but i go back to my own experience when i was uh in undergraduate college i helped found a war game club on campus it was the early 1980s we didn't call it a war game club we called it the historical simulation society you know and why did we do that it was it because of definitional issues no it was marketing it was because the word war had a negative connotation and the word game in connection with war had a negative connotation because it appears to trivialize a very serious thing and that wasn't the you know the the marketing pitch that we wanted out there of the name of our club it 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 didn't change what we what we were interested in or what we were doing <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what we played, it was just we realized that um, that with a broader audience, you know, words have have spin. They have not only denotation, they have connotation. They have implications. They have um, uh, baggage. They they are they are laden. So I don't have any problem with the word conflict simulation if it's something that might end up being uh, uh, more inviting to somebody to explore games set in military history, you know, they, and I'm hoping like later on down the road, they won't care whether we call it a war game or not. Um, but in the beginning before, uh, you know, bef before um, they've delved into the medium, th they might. And, and if, you know, marketing is useful, if, 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 if it helps us to reach a broader audience, to, to, to attract more people to check out an endeavor that we think is a, you know, a, a rich and fascinating and rewarding endeavor, you know, if, if, if using one term versus another helps us do that, I'm okay with it. Yeah. There's, there's certainly a marketing aspect to things that, that absolutely applies. And, you know, again, calling something a conflict simulation certainly sounds more serious and highfalutin than just slapping a, you know, the title of game on there. Uh, which, or maybe just more neutral. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that I've seen over the years, and, and again, academic background over in the communication world, not the history world, the modeling and Sims world, but the, the various interactivity that's been studied in the communication field over the years to include the studies of games, there is still a very significant component of the public, the general public. Folks, look, I, I just turned 50 this year. Folks my age and, and that have literally grown up with video games in the house, right? Our first Atari 2600, I was like eight when we bought one. We've literally grown up with video games in the house, and I have peers my age who still think of games as, oh, it's those things that belong to kids. Adults don't do those things. Dude, you've had some sort of Nintendo in your house your entire life. You claim it's for the kids, but you're playing it just as much as anybody else. There's this idea that the term game is somehow non-serious, and it's this it's this kid-focused thing, whereas, you know, serious adults do simulations. Like, we're, we're you know, we don't do games. We're more important than that. And that's, you know, goes back to your marketing point there, Volko. I, some people react differently to the terms for, for various reasons. Ro Rocky, I can see you shuffling papers there. Were you looking up the Dunnigan definition in one of the books? <laughs> I was actually going back to uh, Len Dighton's spy story, which I, I wrote a thing on. It just takes yep. place at the study center, the war game center in London. And, and I was trying to find, there's a piece in here, they talk about historical uh, historical reconstruction and war games and how uh, they really would want to be called like something other than war games, but everybody just keeps going back to war games. I can't find it in here right now. But I think that's part of the story too, is that, you know, there's there's a group out there, uh, part of the hobby that sits there and goes, well, it's, it's not a war game, but at the end of the day, we always keep coming back to, it's it's a war game just because yeah. that's almost like the easiest uh way to 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 uh, handle the definition rather than get caught up in something else we just sort of throw up our hands and say okay conflict sim historical simulations uh it's a war game and then yeah. we can argue about is it one word or two words but we won't go there tonight we'll, we'll channel our inner north dallas 40 every time i say it's a game you, game you say it's a simulation and every time i say it's a simulation you say it's a game so <laughs> James, what do you think? Has this enhanced any of the clarity of our long-running argument on games versus Sims here? Maybe. <laughs> I, I'm, of course, I am contractually required to say, Brant, you're still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the, that having been a tagline of these through the years, it's forced me to think about it again, which is always a good thing. At some levels, I realize that arguing about these definitions is sort of like arguing about the number of angels who can dance on the head of a pin. And there, there's some truth to that. On the other hand, there's value also in figuring out what do we really mean by these terms so that we can all use the same word and agree on what it means when we mean. Oddly, the, uh, the other sideline definitional issue we have over war game in the army is that many army officers hear the word war game and they think that it's a step in the military decision-making process Yeah, because there is a war gaming step there. And they then say, Oh, well that's what war gaming is. And that's, it's a blind man in the elephant error. You've found one part of the elephant and concluded that's the whole thing. And often in the models and Sims world, a lot of the arguments over what's a model, what's a Sim, what's a war game come down to the thing I do is X and the thing you do is not what I do. Therefore, as opposed to recognizing, that in a lot of ways, at least in the Army, wargaming is a technique that can be applied to a variety of purposes. And what it looks like when it's applied to analytic as opposed to education, as opposed to training, as opposed to uh, whatever, often looks different. But it doesn't mean that the technique has changed, the core of the technique. Yeah, that, that was one of the
the things that that we've talked about a couple of times over the years, some on podcasts, some in columns, uh, in that 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 video on games and sims for training and learning that that I did also. The those games can be used for a wide variety of purposes. Um, you know, you mentioned the 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 primary place where most military, where most army officers see it, and probably the Marine Corps guys too. Uh, for the longest time, although it's it's changing faster for the Marine Corps, I think, than for the Army, is it's a step in the military decision making process, right? It's it's the step at which we we fight through each of our courses of action to evaluate them on a couple of different criteria. So it's a data collection exercise, as well as in part sort of a, a mini map board rehearsal for certain things. But you can use them for for straight up training. Let's just compare outcomes and, and use that to validate the things that we've learned. So I, I've taught you a bunch of stuff. Now go play this competitive environment game and show me that you've learned what I've taught you. There's, there's the evaluative criteria data collection piece from the military decision-making process. There's the ability to collect data based on varying courses of action or changes in condition uh, within what you do. There's one of the ones that I ran into at the National Defense University. I'd never really seen it put into place until we were working on that project with them back in in 2010, 2011. And James, I know you've seen some of the back briefs from it. Volko, you might have along the way somewhere with the the gemstone stuff we did with Ellie Bartels. That the Playing through this game was the first thing the students did in the program, not not a capstone exercise at the end. It was the first thing they did. And and really the it served as an opportunity opportunity to build interest in the topic for the participants because they they're immersed in it first thing in that first week of class that's what they're doing is they're playing a game on this counterinsurgency topic which was the point of the the year-long course they were there for and and so it served as a great introduction to the material they weren't being graded on what they were doing that it gave the faculty an opportunity to see the level of expertise that the participants had it also gave the faculty a a week full of common shared experience that they could always refer back to during the course for all of those participants. Hey, you remember back during the exercise when this thing popped up, this is an example of this concept we're going to talk about this week. And and so as an introduction to the material, rather than as an evaluated capstone to the material, you can throw the wargaming at the front of the class also. And that's that's totally, you know, a, a, a totally valid use of it all. Um, Volga, I don't know if you ever did that professionally or not, um, but but I've seen it. I've now seen it done. And and it was kind of cool the way to do that. And the other thing, of course, that you can do, and, and James, you've seen this, obviously, over the years is you can always turn game design into the assignment itself right that's what the goose guys do um you know let's let's learn about the models and the conflicts and the the way in which the conflict unfolded and how certain things happened and the history behind it all by having to make a game out of it so now you got to learn the history but you've also got to learn the variety of different ways in which you can model that conflict underneath it all and uh and so there's a lot of different purposes that war games can serve for you um james you summed it up well right the blind man and the elephant that that only gives you one small facet of war gaming not anywhere close to a holistic picture of it all. So, Volko, you were nodding along. Yeah. Something I said you agreed with. (laughs) Yeah, and you'd asked me if I I I had... Uh, done that and I have done that I've used games at the at the outset uh, of a course and and at the end and uh, and then game designs uh, design itself as a way of uh, um, uh, educating uh, and and stimulating research I I mean I could talk about that for a long time so I I won't (laughs) except to just everything everything you said absolutely Uh, all uh, you know properly used uh, games that 
model, simulation games, are an extraordinarily potent medium, an extraordinarily potent tool for uh, exploration of serious topics in all those ways that, that, that you said. And one ask, I mean, there's so many aspects of them that are, but just one that, that I was thinking about um, gemstone at NDU and the idea of using it at the beginning of a year-long course and then referring back later. And, and one thing, an aspect that I'm sure made that um, very powerful is that when you when you play a game, um, it, you are uh, you are not just hearing a story to learn. You're creating a story as a participant, and and storytelling, story relating is a a, a primal method of teaching. It's and a reason that if done well, it's very effective. It's very memorable. And if you yourself are in the story and creating it, it's especially memorable. And um, I experienced that so many times that, you know, some years later, a student was in my class and they sure don't remember any, you know, lectures that were given. They remember they played this game and this happened to them and they beat this, you know, and they, they pulled this cool move and that's what they remember. And I can, I can just easily imagine these students at NDU months later, vividly remembering this dynamic of insurgency, let's say. Uh, that came up during play at the beginning and the and the the instructors being able to relate back to that. And I have no doubt that worked very well. Yeah. And I think, James, you've had similar happenings in some of your courses with the, the game being what was most memorable and the, the big takeaway that people had was the, the lesson they got from the game, not the lesson they got from you standing in front of the room droning on about something. Uh, absolutely. And increasingly, particularly given what I'm teaching most of the time, we're leaning into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. Totally get that. Um, I, Rocky, I don't think you do as much professionally, and, and we're not asking you to sort of divulge what's going on professionally there, but I, I know you've spoken in the past about some of the resistance in your office to, to even getting games on the table, much less trying to use them for anything serious. Yes. Uh, so, you know, showing people that they can make that connection is is sometimes there's institutional uh, barriers to that. But I will echo, even from a non-professional viewpoint, I mean, I'm sure we all have the games that we've played with our families and such and and there are certain games that will never be forgotten uh the time that somebody did, did that brilliant move the time that somebody uh you know pulled off that perfect the perfect play and, and got it out there and that comes back to again the whole what is it to me yeah so what is it to me how is that connection to me um and and whether we want to argue about complexity accessibility uh, fidelity of simulation. I mean, the, the ultimate uh, really goodness that's coming out of war games is it creates a connection to me. Some games connect better than others, uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about creating that connection to you. Um, I, I really revel in the connection to, to learning and, and using it as, as a vehicle of, of, uh, of learning. I, I sit down, I read my books, I sit down, I play the games, and I, and I try to learn more, and I try to help others uh, to learn that the same way. So that's, I'm glad to hear that always it's the, the, full, the to me is, is a very important part. Sometimes I feel that, you know, what am I missing here? But I, it's not what I'm missing. It's, it's what is it meaning to me? And that's yeah. a good piece to, that, that thanks to, to Volko, thanks to James for helping me uh, clarify my thoughts on that. And, you know, complexity is not, complexity is not, you know, 20 pages, 30 pages, 100 pages rule. Complexity is just how much does it connect to me? 
me. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is also the idea that we all start from different points within the material. And so for someone who has zero knowledge of the South China Sea area at all, or any of the geopolitical conflicts going on within it, it may be less the game engine that gives them any insight to it than just reading the actions on the cards. And the fact that these sorts of actions are possible or not, that these sorts of conflicts might happen or might not. Uh, you know, ultimately, Twilight Struggle is... is you know, there's there's some political influence to it all, but ultimately it's an area control game. You can learn a lot of history reading the cards. You can learn a lot about, whoa, I never knew that this thing even occurred. Let me go look it up and learn something else about it. I, I remember uh, there was a Twilight Struggle game that the, the instructor was doing all of the game engine manipulation, but the kids were reading the cards to sort of understand a little bit of it in a middle school history class. And the idea that, you know, there were occasional shootouts in the mountains along the, the Chinese-Russian border. They're like, what do you mean these guys were shooting? Yeah, they were shooting at each other. And that was a jumping off point for, for these kids, these, you know, 10, 11, 12, well, not 10, 11, 12, 13 year old kids to, to go learn a little more about a piece of history that they'd never had an opportunity to even know existed. Um, all because of a card in a game that the instructor was kind of manipulating for them. So that's, that's kind of a cool thing that, that they could grab there and run with. Well, but yeah, I think you were going to jump in there with some. Uh, yeah, it, it makes me think of something that I, another aspect that I think is so powerful about um, simulation games and particularly accessible um, physical models like board games. And this goes back to um, a distinction that James made early on between models that just sit there and simulations that show dynamics, that show change over time. And games, because they involve agency and actions and reactions and pursuit of goals and all of that, are very good at bringing out dynamics. And that is really important in understanding human affairs. So at like warfare, right? Or politics or diplomacy or economics. Because what we are trying to understand in human affairs are complex, for, in, in the, complex in the formal, not complex like very complicated, complex in the formal mathematical sense, complex adaptive systems, systems of interactions that have their own character because of the nature of the relationships and how things, actors and factors within affect each other. And this is something that we um, grappled with a lot in trying to teach and equip intelligence analysts to understand, understand the world and for which games became very, very useful. And, and an aspect of that that, that that you remind me about is when you say, well, different people come to the South China Sea with different amounts of knowledge. And so therefore, what they're going to learn from playing a game about it is going to be different. And it might just be events from the cards. It might be very basic geography. But anybody, anybody who knows something about the politics of a region, let's say, the diplomacy there or the potential for conflict, comes to it with slightly different set of knowledge. And this goes back to the nature of models. When we're dealing with something really complex, um, like politics, diplomacy, and potential conflict in the South China Sea, all of these moving parts, even the experts have to simplify it. They have a mental model. And I've seen this in action repeatedly in my career, you know, <laughs> right? They have a, a, a lot of knowledge. They have a very sophisticated mental model, but they have what is 
in fact, a, a simplification. Nobody can really take in everything. And one expert, one South China Sea's expert's mental model is different in some aspects than another. And this is true of, 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 of historians, politicians, econ economists, right? The, we have a lot of debate and argument because in large part, we are simplifying things in slightly different ways or maybe in vastly different ways. Now, every person who comes to a war game probably has their interest in that war game probably because they know something. They know something about that topic, that setting or whatever, but it's different than the next player and it's different than the game designer and so on. And what's happening that I think is so magical when players access access this model, this war game that a designer or a design team has put forward and share it with other players maybe, what's happening is magical is the synthesis between the player's mental models and the model on the table that they're operating. And that's where a lot of the learning comes of the most interesting kind, which is what are the dynamics? How does this thing work? What happens if I push more supplies here or I strike the enemy's logistics over there? What happens, you know, a, a, a U.S. freedom or whatever, a freedom of navigation mission in the South China Sea, what's the impact of that? I might never have, I might have looked at the area for a while and never exactly asked that precise question, especially not the dynamics of then how does China react and what is what happens in Indonesia and so forth. Um, and if I can see it happen on the table in a way that somebody else, not me, has simplified it and I compare it to my own mental model, that's where some real powerful learning comes in. If I can, like I say, access that model and if that and if I buy the model, I mean I have to relate that model to the real world. Otherwise I'm just, you know, put placing cubes, right? right. I have to see the connection and, and, and again, suspend my disbelief to say, okay, I see the representation. I know what those cubes mean. And I see how it relates to the real world. It, it somehow relates enough to my own model, but it's slightly different. And after I've played it, if I've learned anything, what I've really come away with is a refined mental model, a better simplification, a more sophisticated simplification than I had before of whatever that complex system is. I, I think a lot of folks, quite frankly, would end up pointing at a bunch of the coin games as as an example of that and uh i hope Volca doesn't get all sheepish on on us about you know pointing out one of his games here but the the coin series for a lot of folks it's you know you're moving around cubes and discs and you know you've got some cards that sort of tell you who gets to go first and, and there are some war gamers that i know that that are very dismissive about it oh it's a it's a euro game that happens to take place during you know a shooting war or whatever but but i think those models that you're talking about those conflict models that you don't need the granularity of an of a marine infantry battalion versus U.S. Army infantry battalion versus a French infantry battalion. You just need coalition forces in a location in a distant plane to have an effect on the area. And at the level of abstraction that the game takes place, that level of granularity is unnecessary. It's either something that's a little more permanently anchored, a base that's got a geographic home, or these are forces, they are, are actors capable of doing things that you can move around the map some. And, and at the level at which that game I, that game, those games, any of the coin games sort of take place. You, you don't need anything more defined down at the lower tactical level because the tactical actions, quite frankly, are fairly irrelevant in the game model. And that's, that was the point. I mean, that's, that's, you know, uh, that, that yeah, was I, 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 yeah, I'll affirm that. And I'm, I'm not generally known for being sheepish. So hopefully that <laughs> might be a problem. Uh, on this occasion, yeah, I, I th an, an answer, an easy answer to the critique that, well, this game, coin series game, is it's it's not a 
it's not a simulation. It's not a war game. It's just, you know, pushing cubes around because it's too simple because it doesn't have this or doesn't have that detail is to go back to what is, what is a, these are all models. War games are all models. What is a model? It's a purposeful simplification. They're all simplifications. They're all simplifications to a certain purpose. Case blue is a simplification. Okay. When the Germans drove on Stalingrad, there were no hexes. There was not a hex grid. The hex grid is a simplification that helps you regulate movement in an accessible way on your tabletop. It's, you know, does that make it frivolous? Does it make it wrong? Well, it does make it wrong in the way that all models are wrong. It makes it wrong to a certain degree, but it's purposeful. It's wrong, but useful. It's a useful simplification. And the coin series also uses useful simplifications to its purpose. James, give us some reactions here. One of them sort of stitches back a ways, by the way. I would poke at you on the useful output for MDMP wargaming. To my mind, the useful output is not data collection, it's questions. It's I did things and you did things back and holy crap, we didn't think about this opportunity, this threat. How are we going to deal with that? So we thought about it before the thing comes off, which folds into the a thing we often run into with computer sims and a problem that they have compared to manual is that because people don't understand the model inside them, they wind up throwing things at the black box, hoping that goodness comes out and figure, well, I'm a genius if it works and the models are screwed me over if it did. And the manual games are harder to use, but they are, they are often more useful in that people have to do the work of working through them and therefore they understand yeah. them. To, to be clear, my characterization of the MDMP wargaming, MDMP military decision-making process, for those that missed the reference earlier, that you are correct in that it does and should and darn well better identify a bunch of questions we didn't already ask during the plan that allow us to better refine the plan. But the explicit purpose as outlined in the manual is a bit of a data collection exercise because the commander is supposed to specify, these are the courses of action I want you to pursue, and these are the criteria upon which I want you to evaluate them, right? Feasibility might be one, sustainability might be one. It may be more important to conserve uh, combat power by the end of the mission far more than gaining as much ground as we can because of whatever follow-on mission we're expecting or that was his commander's guidance or whatever it might be. And so the the explicit instructions for the MDMP war game, according to the manual, is you're supposed to evaluate each of these courses of action based on that commander's criteria upon the completion of the war game. So when I'm talking about it as a data collection exercise, it that's that's because that's the explicit purpose as explained in there. And that's that's the reference that I'm making there. You're you're right that it absolutely can and should generate a whole lot of questions to allow for better course of action refinement um I, I has got hold of it somewhere in the last umpteen years yeah <laughs> um, I, I i was i was referring more to the sort of the explicit purpose as explained in the in the doctrinal manual there i, I do want to go once around the table here quickly and and let everybody get kind of a parting shot in as we start to wrap this up some james i'm going to throw it to you first um because because you're in the top right of this whole thing and we'll just work counterclockwise through through what i'm looking at on the screen here thoughts on this conversation as a whole and what what the audience should be taking away from this it's always a fun debate i I guess you know, because we've been... We wouldn't have done this for a decade and a half if it wasn't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, 
But in terms of takeaways, the I think the key thing I would say is that you need to separate the definitions from the definition of what something is from the question of whether or not it is a quality example of whatever it is. That while my reaction to something is very important and my reaction to it is driven by a whole rank of things that are both personal and situational and whatnot, it doesn't stop something being an, an example of its type. And you could sit there and say, well, this mud pie is a pretty terrible pie, but it's still a pie, technically. Uh, might not be a bad example since I would tend to think of a pie as something you'd eat. And I'd be pretty <laughs> unwilling to eat a mud pie, but you know, there could be great apple pie and terrible apple pie, but they're all pies. And even if that particular pie has some ingredient that means that it does not speak to me as being worthy of another bite, it doesn't mean that it is... Therefore, you know, somehow not a pastry. Yeah. Volko, what do you think? Yeah, I suppose on a on a personal note, I should say, well, what is it? You know, what is the for me <laughs> um, that makes it good? Uh, and the the it being being game. Um, I and I, I think this is similar to to what you described uh, for yourself, Ian. Uh, I. I play tabletop games principally to uh, examine military history. That's the main thing. It's not the only kind of games I play, but the ones that I really put a lot of energy into and I get the most fun out of, I'm getting the fun mainly out of that. They're transporting me into some military historical situation and I buy the model and I might, you know, spend a lot of time trying to learn a really complicated game with a not beautifully written set of rules <laughs> because for because on because I buy the model because I do it's it's connecting me to that time and place it is transporting me and I might pl- spend a lot of time playing a game that has very brief rules simple mechanics and simple components because again somehow that design is helping me do my time tourism through military history that's the 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 for me connection that for me makes a, a game great that's the that's the long and short of it for me we won't ask you to name names but if you were referring to the rules for the labatai series blink twice <laughs> <laughs> there are i'm afraid to say many examples yeah <laughs> that one's top of mind only because that's the one that Ardwolf was clipping last night on his counter clipping stream. And of course, everybody made fun of him after uh, Buckeye Game Fest, where we, we sat there for 90 minutes and listened to, to a bunch of guys argue over the rules for something that turned out to be completely inconsequential because the player decided not to do the thing they were arguing over. That, that we just decided that was perfectly emblematic of the Labatai rules system and, uh, and and all had a good laugh. And then Gary went and bought the game. So we all had a laugh at Gary about it too hey, rocky again this was all your fault you started this fight so you get to to give us the last word here well i just want to play off a little bit of one of Volko's comments there of why we play i'm i'm a little bit worried um that maybe with this particular august group that we may actually have a bit of a intellectual blinder of sort um in that we all sort of approach games um in many ways from a professional viewpoint or from a professional background um certainly we play for fun but maybe that's the point that we're missing in all this conversation is um somewhere else uh, there was some people um talking that you know that isn't why they play they're not playing because they're trying to learn something they're just simply playing for the fun um and so where does the simulation versus war game discussion come down for them maybe that's something uh that we need to uh, talk to some others in the hobby 
about of uh, of, for a true hobbyist. I mean, if my boys were sitting in on this conversation, they have a totally different perspective on what simulation versus war game is. So we all play for different reasons, but I think one of the ones that we got to come back to, and maybe it's a good reminder that that number one reason, and Volko said it, he plays it for fun. What is the fun he's looking for out of it? And even though James is using it for some very serious uh, studies out there with the with the military, at the end of the day, it's the fun factor. And uh, and where does the simulation war games come down on that? At the end of the day, I think I said the same thing when we were doing the what is a war game episode. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what the definition is as much as you want a definition, Brant. It's really just are we having fun with it, and is it is it creating some joy uh, for us? And and I'm happy to say that I think war games do a great job of creating a lot of fun for a lot of people. Yeah, even though some of them are very serious about it, will argue for 90 minutes. Somebody was having fun there for 90 minutes. Not my idea of fun, but somebody was having fun. The, the reason we were arguing over that that war game definition was that it played back to uh, some of the kerfuffle over what was what was and what should have been winning the Charlie Awards. That, that was part of the reason we were having that discussion. Um, when they brought the Charlies back, there were some things winning that sort of made all of us stop and scratch our head and go, wait a minute, why, why was that even in the Charlie Awards? Um, so that's that was part of the driving point behind it. Plus, let's face it, man, we, we need, you know, 13 to 15 episodes per season. And uh, at some point, arguments like that are great content. So... That's uh that that's a good part of the the discussion there, guys. Thank y'all very much for for being here for taking some time on the, in in your evening to come out and you know let's uh let, let's have a fun discussion about some wargaming stuff and and I hope that the audience got a little something out of this as a part of it all as well. Uh, looking forward to some of the reactions that the audience has, uh, whether they are comments here at our site or or on their own shows or blogs or wherever. Um, who knows? Maybe we can start another sprawling Twitter thread to uh, to, to drag this in. I, I am curious if it's worth us trying to schedule another version of this conversation, but let's do it at, you know, 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning so we can get all our European brethren involved. Uh, see, see if we can't drag all of them into a conversation on this as well. Um, so, uh, James, thank you for coming back. Rocky, thank you for being here two weeks in a row. And Volko, thank you for crashing the party. Appreciate you guys being here. Um, audience, thank you guys for listening because without y'all, look, we have a show, but it's a lot less fun without the audience feedback as well. Keep in mind, we've set aside a pair of episodes later this season specifically for topics and feedback suggested by the listeners. So if you've got something you want us to talk about, make sure you drop it in the comments down below this episode or on the podcast thread in our forums. Uh, if you don't suggest anything, we're going to have 90 minutes of dead air those weeks. Uh, Rocky and I will sit here and just cough into the microphone to make sure it's still alive. Uh, but otherwise, we, we're going to need some topics from you guys on things we can talk about. In the meantime, we've got shows coming up on solo wargaming, on Kickstarters and crowdfunding. Uh, we've got one coming up on accessories and doodads, uh, as suggested by our buddy BB Mike last week. Uh, and Rod, Rocky, I think you were, you were in on that conversation as well. Uh, we've also got a pretty interesting one lined up on Wargaming Media and sort of the content creators in the Wargaming space and kind of how we do some of the things we do. And we've got one coming up on the Connections Online Showcase. We're going to have a couple of the speakers there come in and talk to us. So uh, thanks to the panel. Thanks to the audience. Appreciate everybody. And we'll catch you another time on another episode of Mentioning Dispatches. Thank you.